Folks, we started to look at the book of Judges last week. We'll continue uh, doing so uh, tonight. It's an interesting time in Israel's history. Joshua, magnificent leader, had died. And uh, Israel then, after Joshua, was, was led by a group of men called Judges. This was before a, the monarchy in Israel, during which time the leader was a king. So before the king and after Joshua, they had a group of leaders called judges. They were called judges, as I mentioned last week, because they would adjudicate legal cases, civil cases, criminal cases. They would render judgments. But they were judges way beyond that. They were more like deliverers, even, even saviors, little saviors, if you will. And so they, they led Israel. We read about the first one last week, Othniel, meaning Lion of God. We'll consider two more uh, tonight. And the judges were graciously provided by God to deliver the people from whom? Well, sadly, in most cases, from themselves. Israel, this is a terrible thing. Israel cried out to God. They were enslaved in Egypt, and God heard their cry and liberated them. And then God provided for Israel during 40 years of wilderness wandering and then God promised Israel a place, a place of promise, and he kept his word. And Israel enters into the promised land, and yet Israel turns from her own God. It's a terrible thing. And Israel took on the worship of false gods. And so Israel really needed to be delivered from her own sinful inclinations. And a God of grace sent to her these little deliverers, these little mini-saviors called judges, during her history at this particular time because it was kind of a sin cycle. We spoke about it, and you'll see it repeating itself about a dozen sad times in the book of Judges. Israel would rebel, and God would um, lovingly send a measure of retribution, and then Israel, under the distress of it all, would repent, and God, because of the constancy of his grace, would provide restoration. That's the sin cycle, rebellion, retribution, repentance, and restoration. We saw it play out last time. Sadly, you'll see it again uh, tonight as well. So let's take a look at the second and third judges of Israel. It's in Judges chapter 3 now, verse 12. Judges 3, verse 12. Now the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. The haunting and disturbing word, I think, in that little phrase is the word again. Here is Israel sinning again and, and again and again, which begs the question, what is it in that people group that causes them to repeat this pattern of sin? Well, what, what is it about us? Is there something about human nature that inclines our hearts in this direction of repetitive sin and rebellion against God? I think there is because we're, we're sinners. I would gather most in here understand that. And yet in the surrounding world, that concept is passing out of fashion. And to suggest that we've been, for instance, conceived in sin, and when we sin, we're simply acting in a way that's consistent with our inherent sinful nature, to suggest that out there in the public sector will meet with sore disapproval. 
I think sinners out there would like to think we're good and simply choose to do some not good things from time to time. No, no that, that's not true at all. We're conceived in sin and the evidence of our sin nature is borne out almost every day in our lives. It's in us, it's who we are in thought, word, and deed. We're not like God in this respect. Our privilege is to become more like him, but it is our inherent nature to be sinful and to act it out. And so that's what happened in ancient Israel and that's what happens even amongst us today. And then the text says they did this in the sight of the Lord, which is an interesting concept because the sins committed uh, by most sinners, I think, are not considered to be sins by most sinners. <laughs> most sinners who sin would relabel their sin. They would call it a mistake. I made a mistake, you see. I made a poor choice. And some would even defend their action. You know, they were two consenting adults. Or what happens in the privacy of your, your domicile is your business, you see. So the average sinner out there is about the business of even redefining sin. But this text says, no, no, sin is that which is considered to be sin in the sight of Almighty God. So we spoke last week about this terrible encroachment on our uh, sensibilities called moral relativism. Uh, the theme of Judges I mentioned last week is given to us in the last verse of this book, and then everyone did what was right in his, in his own eyes. Uh, people were not so much intent on doing that which is wrong. No, they were choosing to do that which was right, but the problem was the definition of right and wrong had become very subjective. And so people would say, well, what's right for you is right for you, but not necessarily right for me. It's a very dangerous philosophy because by that definition, someone could think he's doing right by helping an elderly lady across the street, but someone could just as passionately say, I think it's right if I run over that lady. Who's to say who's right and who's wrong when absolutes have died. When there are no longer moral absolutes, then everyone does what's right in his own eye. Uh, but this text is saying, oh no, uh, some things are right, some things are wrong. Uh, uh, that's a transcultural, transtemporal concept. Uh, some things are always wrong, some things are always right, and who says so? Well, God, the master of the universe. So sin, therefore, is defined as sin Notice, not by what I think or you think, not by what we put to a vote, not even what's legislated, but sin is sin if it is sin in the sight of the Lord. And so Israel did this. They sinned again and again in the sight of the Lord. So here's what happened. So the Lord strengthened a fellow named Eglon. Who was he? He was a king of a people group called the Moabites. God strengthened Eglon, the king of the Moab, the text says. This is a surprise to me, maybe to you when you read it. He strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, his own people. Why? Well, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. I find this quite surprising. I would have expected the text to say the Lord strengthened Israel, but it doesn't say that. It says the Lord strengthened Eglon 
against Israel. Does this mean God is through with Israel? Does he hate Israel? I don't think so. He redeemed Israel graciously, mercifully. He provided for Israel uh, again for 40 years of wilderness wandering. He gave Israel a special place called the promised land. He entered into covenant with Israel. He loves Israel. So how do you explain this? Well, I shared this passage of scripture last week, Revelation 3.19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. And that's what was happening with God's response to Israel. He loved them enough. Our father loves us enough to care about how we live. And when we don't live rightly, he allows the natural consequences often of our misbehavior to affect us in the hope that it might cause us to turn around, repent of it, and come back to the Father. It's really flattering, really a blessing, that the transcendent deity, the God on high, is not so far removed from you and I, his kids, that he's indifferent and unaware about what the course of our life is like. It's good to have a dad who cares. Do you know most people in prison are in prison because they didn't have a dad who set bounds? You could actually study it. The vast majority of those who are incarcerated for long periods of time either had no dad, don't know who their dad is, or, had, who, or who had a dad who was there but not really de- there. What's the effect on that Youngster, as he grows up, he hasn't learned restraint. Nobody has taken an interest enough in his life to say, yes, do this, or no, don't do that. I shared this with you when I grew up in New York. Uh, I grew up in a um, kind of a low-income housing development. It was an apartment kind of a thing. And we used to hang out on the block. That's what you do. And one time the kids said, hey, let's, uh, let's sleep out tonight. Urban camping. There was, a, of all places, a church. It was a Methodist church. We didn't go in, but we went on it at night. We went on top of the roof. It was a flat roof. And we decided that would be a good place to sleep out. That's urban camping. And... Uh, so all the guys said, yeah, yeah, let's do this. But, uh, but, but they said, but first, they, they were saying, I have to ask my dad. I have to ask my dad. I started to feel really bad. I didn't have to ask my dad. My dad would not have known if I camped out for six months. I had a dad, but his alcoholism caused him to be there, but not there. It consumed him, and therefore he had no time for those of us around him. And the kid said to me, Stuart, you're the luckiest guy on the block because you could do whatever you want. You don't ever have to ask your parents. You, you just do what you want. And I, I, and I played a game and I said, oh, absolutely, I really got it licked. This is just really, really great. Terrible. Great despair. Uh, very despondent, uh, even as a youngster. I have a dad who doesn't care enough to tell me I don't want you sleeping out on a roof. It's a bad thing. That's why when I got saved, I knew I was saved from the penalty of sin, but there was more to it. I was saved from uh, an absentee father. I got a heavenly father who cared how I lived. How do I know this? He gave me commandments in the book. 
Those commandments were not meant to rain on our parade. Those commandments are God's love. Stuart, don't do this. Stuart, do that. I'm telling you what to do because I care about how you live. That's a wonderful thing. Well, that's how God postured himself with Israel. He wasn't out to destroy her. He was out to develop her. And he knew he had to do it by showing her what happens when you don't do what Father, who knows best, wants you to do. So he strengthened Israel's enemies here, Eglon, not because he was tired of Israel and through with her any more than he'll ever be through with you or I. He did it to move Israel to repentance. And so he strengthened Eglon, king of Moab. Who are the Moabites, by the way? So Abram, Abraham had a nephew. Remember him, Lot? And crazy things happened. You know, there was Sodom and Gomorrah and all this stuff, and they had to move out. And Lot's daughters were nervous. You know, people, they said, will hear about Sodom and Gomorrah and fire and brimstone. No man will want to marry us. We'll never be able to bear children. Let's get our dad drunk. You know about this incident? I'm not making this up. This is true stuff. Anyway, let's get him drunk, and we'll take turns and go into him. And so the the eldest daughter did this first, had relations with her dad, and the product was a guy named Moab. And that's how you got the Moabites. And they're living right now to the east of Israel. If you think of I mean, right now, I mean in the text. They were living to the east of Israel. So, so just on the other side of the Jordan River, in what is today present-day Jordan. So there's a guy named Eglon. He's their leader, leader of the Moabites. God's strengthening him to subjugate the Israelites. And so if there was a newspaper, then you'd read in the headline, Moab attacks and subjugates Israel. And you would have a tendency to think, oh my goodness, Moab, Eglon, they're calling the shots. Oh, you'd be wrong. God is. (laughs) The mighty hand of God is, is always at work, although not always quite visible and apparent. The real news is what's happening behind the news, behind the scene. Uh, nobody can do anything that the sovereign God doesn't permit to be done. And so he's working things. You know what our problem is? Well, maybe not yours, maybe mine. When good things happen, uh, we have a tendency to attribute it to good fortune. And when bad things happen, we have a tendency to attribute it to bad fortune. But that's not true. Both Israel's uh, blessings and Israel's burdens were all from the sovereign hand of God. He never was less sovereign than he always was. In good times and in bad. There is no such, can you buy this? For a Christian in particular, there's no such thing as an unfortunate turn of events. There's no such thing as an accident. There's no such thing as the cruel winds of fate or whimsy. There's no such thing as randomness or chance occurrence of events. No. Everything that comes our way, the blessings and the burdens, are all a result of the sovereignty of God. And what's the purpose? Twofold. His glory and our good. His glory and our good. Is a cancer diagnosis good? No. Is it an unfortunate turn of events? No. Did God allow it? Yes. He's sovereign, even over things like cancer. Why does he do it? His glory and people's good. 
That's his goal. So as with us today, so too with ancient Israel. No, Moab was not calling the shots. God was, and he was using Moab as the instrumentality of the unfolding of his sovereign will. And so it says in verse 13, he gathered to himself, uh, that is um, Eglon, gathered to himself more folks, sons of Ammon and Amalek. Why did he do that? Well, he heard about these Israelites. When they came into the land of promise, they beat up on everybody real good. And so uh, Eglon says, I got to beef up the works here. And so he enters into a coalition with two other people groups, the Ammonites and the Amalekites, uh, to increase the probability that he could conquer Israel. Now, who are the Ammonites? Well, back to that crazy, sordid story with Lot. He's still under the influence of alcohol, and now the younger daughter goes into him with her dad to have relations, and what pops out is a guy named Ammon. So the Ammonites are living, when this was written, just north of the Moabites, again, the east side of the Jordan River in present-day Jordan. And then the third group, they're called the Amalekites. Who are they? Well, they're kind of a nomadic people, and they hung out in the southern part of Israel, south of a place called Beersheba. Anyway, they decide to go together and the gang up on Israel. God strengthens them and, well, they succeed in doing what they choose to do. And so it says in verse 14, the sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Last week we read about their servitude under somebody else, eight years. Why now 18 years? Maybe it took them now 18 years before they repented. Who knows? But anyway, it's a sad, terrible thing. These are the people who were redeemed from Egyptian bondage so as to serve Almighty God. Now they end up being slaves of another guy. That's what happens to people of the covenant. We Christians today, I don't believe we lose our salvation. I know some do. Uh, uh, I don't think that stands up against the um, sum total of Scripture. I do not believe we can lose our salvation, but boy, we can sure lose the joy of our salvation. Not our salvation, but the joy thereof. Listen, you got to serve somebody. You either serve the Savior, the Lord Jesus, or you're going to be subjugated to something else. And it could be a sinful pattern of behavior, kind of a bondage that you can't get free of. Anyway, that's what was happening over here. So for 18 years, though they were set free by Almighty God, now they're serving another cruel taskmaster. So verse 15 When the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, what did he do? He raised up a deliverer, a judge for them. He does it again. When you would say the audacity of these Jews to think they can cry out to God again, they sinned again, and they have the nerve to think they can cry out again. They're right. Once you are part of a covenant relationship with Almighty God, you forever remain his son or daughter, wayward and rebellious though you may be, the father never says, finished, I've had enough. The father grieves the absence and the distance. And the father allows circumstances to come our way to motivate us to repent and come back to him. But the father never says, I've had it. Your sin has exceeded my grace. Forget about that song, Amazing Grace. Your sin is far more amazing than my grace. No, never, never. 
And so we see in God's response to Israel, yes, she's able to exercise her sonship and daughtership. She cries out to the father again, and what does he do? He doesn't say, enough is enough, I've had it. No, he sends, he sends a deliverer for them. And we know his name, here it is, Ehud, the son of Gerah, the Benjamite. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. His name is Ehud. He's the second judge in Israel. We read about the first last week. Here's the second. And I know you want to know this. He was a left-handed man. Don't you find the Bible to be intensely interesting and stimulating? I mean, you are reading along, and you find out about the second judge of Israel. Of all, of all the things, the facts about this guy you would want to know, <laughs> the writer tells us he, ha- he was left-handed. What in the world does that have to do with anything? Of course, if you've read the rest of the story, you will see in just a minute or two what it has to do. Now, when it says a left-handed man, you're going to have to trust me here. In the Hebrew, that's not exactly what it means. Well, it means that, but more. When it says he's a left-handed man, it means he was crippled in his right hand. That's what it means. He was bound or restricted in the use of his right hand. This second judge of Israel was handicapped. He was physically handicapped. What a mystery that God would choose him as the deliverer. Nobody else would. I mean, if the people, if it was a democracy, and the people were voting on who their next deliverer were going to be, I don't think this guy would get too many votes. He's physically impaired. Who can he, what could he do? How could he help us? And yet, that's exactly the deliverer the Father chose to use here. You know, I think that's why a lot of people reject the ultimate deliverer, Jesus. He simply was not looking like the triumphant military liberating commander people expected. He was an ordinary looking. That's what the text says. He has no form or comeliness that we would look upon him. If the Lord Jesus entered a room, nobody would stand up to give him much respect. He looked very Semitic, very ordinary, very Jewish, probably very short. I mean, that's the way it was. What an unlikely savior. And you see, that's happening here. What an unlikely deliverer is a hood. Anyway, you'll see here before we finish tonight that this man managed to turn his handicap into a great asset. Well, the text says the sons of Israel sent tribute by him, by Ehud, to Eglon, the king of Moab. What do you mean tribute? Well, look at here. When you're subjugated by a guy named Eglon, he, uh, he exacts a penalty, financial and otherwise. So they had to bring a portion of their crops and monies crazy taxation and so they had to go periodically kind of in a caravan the the tribute is entrusted to a hood he's he's in the lead but there's a whole bunch of other people with him and they're bringing this tribute to this character the king of moab eglon and so verse 16 a hood here's what he did he made himself a sword he's up to something he made himself a sword it had two edges And it was a cubit in length, about 16, maybe 18 inches long. And here's what he did. He bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. So that's kind of normal procedure. If you were a right-handed man, most were, you you would attach your sword here to your left foot because the way they did it, you cross over to get it. 
cross over to get it. Well, this is a guy who's restricted in his right hand. His right hand is not working up to par. And so he strapped his sword on his right leg. Remember, he's left-handed, so he would access it this way. That was statistically unusual at the time. Statistically unusual. So here's what he does, verse 17. He presents the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And now it says, I'm sure you're interested in this. Now Eglon was a very fat man. So we got a left-handed guy and we got a fat guy. To my knowledge, uh, that description is given of no one else in the Bible except Eglon. That's, that's his deal. He's a very fat man. That's, that's what it says. And so it came about when he had finished presenting the, when Ehud finished presenting the tribute to this very fat man, um, he, uh, Ehud, sent the people away who had carried the tribute. So a group of Israelites came to the Moabite king, and at this point, Ehud, uh, he leaves with them. He goes a certain distance away, back home with them, but then something happened that caused him to dismiss them. Go on, he said. And he's going to go back uh, to the king of Moab. That's what it says, verse 19. He himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal. Now, Gilgal was a place right along the Jordan River. Quite significant. When God miraculously dried up the Jordan River, remember when the Israelites were crossing over into the land? He dried it up. And you know what he told Joshua? Joshua, get stones, 12 of them, one for each of the tribes. Make a monument so that you people will remember what I've done for you. And so the 12 stones, a memorial to the goodness and greatness of God, was erected right there at Gilgal. But now Ehud, this unlikely deliverer, is going past it, and he sees it, and it just hits him. No, no, now there were idols there. Instead of the 12 stones, which were to be memorial for the glory of God, now the Jews, the Israelites, who should have been grateful to the God who brought them into this land of promise, now, like the Canaanites in the land, they had succumbed to the worship of their false God, and there were idols there who were being worshipped. And Ehud, I think, all this flashed in his mind, and I think he was saying, because of the sin of my people, that creep, that fat guy, is killing us. And I think Ehud gets the message, someone's got to do something about it. I made myself a double-edged sword. I'm going back. And I think that's why he went back. And so here's what he says. He said, I have a secret message for you, O king. Everybody likes secrets. The king was no different. And the king said, shh, keep silent. No, it's a real secret. He didn't want all his servants to hear about this. So he tells, him to, tells Ehud to keep quiet for a second. And all who attended him left him, clears the room. There's only two of them there. Verse 20, and so Ehud came to him while he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he, the king, arose from his seat. Now that might not have been easy for a guy who was, you know, overweight. But he gets up anyway. And so verse 21, Ehud stretched out his left hand. Remember, that's the only one that works well. He took the sword from his right thigh. Remember, you cross over, you get it. And he thrust it into his belly, the king's belly. That's what he did. 
And the handle also went in after the blade. Yep. Remember, it's 16 to 18 inches long. This is a well-endowed man. Holy moly. And the fat closed over the blade. For he did not draw the sword out of his belly, and the refuse came out. Folks, I did not write this. I'm just reading it. Refuse. So the sword went in. The, the rolls of fat enveloped it. You couldn't get it. But it pierced probably the internal organs, the bowels. And you know what's in the bowels. And what was in the bowels is no longer in the bowels. It's all over the place. And so Ehud went out into the vestibule and he shut the doors of the roof chamber behind him and he locked them. And when he had gone out, his servants came and looked and behold, the doors of the roof chamber were locked and they said, oh, he's only, the king, he's only relieving himself in the cool room. Is this an unbelievable text or what? Holy moly. So what is all this about? Well, it's kind of hot in the Jordan Valley. That's where they are. Get real warm. And so they had flat roofs, homes, just like the Methodist church I told you about, flat roof. And they would put a cool room sometimes on top. It would have lattice walls so that a breeze could pass through, you know, and cool you off. You'd go up there. But um, this guy had been kind of disemboweled and stuff came out. He's in the cool room, the text says. So when the breeze is passing through, it's sort of carrying the odor all through the palace. And therefore, the servants conclude, they don't see what the king's up to, because remember, the doors are, have been locked. But they conclude, based on smell, good night, he's going to the bathroom. That's what happens here. And so uh, they wait patiently. You, know, I mean, you don't want to barge in on the king when... You know, he's in the bathroom. And so they waited until they became anxious. But behold, the, um, the king, he didn't open the doors of the roof chamber. And therefore, they took the key. They got the key. And they opened the doors. And behold, <gasps> their master had fallen to the floor dead. They discover him. Where's Ehud? Well, Ehud escaped while they were delaying. And he passed by the idols again. And he went to a place called Sarah or something. We don't know where that is. He used his handicap uh, in a very opportune way. Probably the king's security guards would not have been too concerned. Here's a man who's got a physical affliction. He doesn't seem like much of a threat. And his dagger under his cloak is on the right side, but in most cases it's supposed to be on the left side. So can you see how he used that all to his advantage? Both his left-handedness and the king's fatness made for the success of this particular um, venture. And so this is what happens. So verse 27, it came about when he had arrived, Ehud that is, he blew the trumpet. That's a shofar. You've seen those things? It's a ram, a ram's horn. You blow these things for a lot of reasons. For one thing, it's to summon the troops together. And that's what he does. He blows it in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country. He was in front of them. He said to them, what an unlikely deliverer. You see how God, God can use the most unlikely people. Anyway, he said to them, pursue them. Because the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. 
And so they went down. What a, what a rallying point was this, was this was this particular leader. And so they went down after him and they seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and, and, and they didn't allow anyone to cross. And so they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust, valiant men. No one escaped. And so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel and the land was undisturbed for 80 years You'll see in the book of Judges, that's the longest period of rest and peace in Israel during this time. For as long as this unlikely deliverer was alive, uh, he kept Israel restrained, devoted to the Lord, and away from idol worship. Godly, unlikely, yet godly Leader, So God used a man whom others would not have thought to be much of a deliverer at all, and yet with God's empowerment, it was this very man who delivered Israel. I surely hope you're praying for our church these days of transition. We would be liars if we said it's a pleasant time we're in here. It's not. Now the Lord has not changed. He's the same Yesterday, today, and forevermore, we, he deserves our worship. We should not let circumstances distract us, but we're in transition. Our beloved founding pastor is going to retire, and that leaves us with whom? We don't know who our next pastor is, do we? Only God does. Therefore, what's our responsibility? Pray that we'd find him. That's what our responsibility is. And pray specifically for the kind of pastor we should have. I don't think we need someone who's intensely good-looking necessarily, all that that wouldn't hurt. Dress as well. Here I'm talking of me. I don't think that's the deal. I think we're looking for someone who, though he may be an unlikely deliverer, is empowered by the very Spirit of God to lead us in victory for the cause of Jesus Christ. I think we're praying for a God-ordained, God-supplied, supernaturally endowed leader like the one we have had for in excess of a half a century. The minister may move on, but the ministry continues. Um, Pray that the next minister would be equally, maybe even more, supernaturally endowed than our present pastor, so as to lead us in victory, the likes of which this left-handed guy led Israel. Now, folks, you and I are not in the same kind of battle as was a hood against the Moabites, Ammonites, and Amalekites, but did you know we're in a daily battle that's just as real? It's a battle against a foe of of a different kind. It's a battle against our fleshly nature. Yeah, Paul writes about it in Galatians 5. Listen, I say walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desire of the flesh for the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh for these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. We're in a battle, flesh versus spirit. Do you know, before we were redeemed, we were all a big F. Think about it. Only flesh. 
We could, we could not control it, restrain it, or say no to it. We're all flesh. When we accept Christ, look how good he is. He sends his spirit to be in us. So now we have F slash S, flesh and spirit. There will be a day when there will be no longer any flesh. That's the day when we enter into our glorified bodies. Until then, daily, for we as Christians, we're in a battle just as real as Ehud was, only it's not against people. It's a flesh versus spirit battle. We could win it just as Ehud did. You know what we have in common with him? We're handicapped as well. We're weak as well. But we have been empowered by Almighty God, just as Ehud has. He's given us his spirit. He's given us his word. He's given us to one another to hold each other accountable. You know what else he's given us? A double-edged sword of a much more powerful kind even than Ehud's. If you read the weaponry available to us for spiritual warfare as enumerated in Ephesians chapter 6, doesn't it say, and the sword of the spirit, which is the... Word of God. So I love this verse. David wrote it, Psalm 119, verse 11. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I may not sin against you. Uh, Ehud hid his double-edged sword under his cloak. And we are to hide our double-edged sword, the very word of God, in our hearts and in our minds as we go out to do battle against the flesh every single day. Folks, we're in a battle for our very spiritual lives and God has enabled us to win it and now in the final verse of this chapter we read about the third judge of Israel isn't it peculiar so much space has been invested to speak about a hood and only one verse with reference to the next one his name is Shamgar look verse 31 after him a hood the second judge came Shamgar who is he well He's the son of a guy named Anath. What did he do? What did Shamgar do? Well, he struck down 600 different enemy here, Philistines. How did he do it? With an ox goad. And he also saved Israel. Another unlikely deliverer. You know what an ox goad is? It's a stick. It's an unusual kind of an instrument to use to win victory over anybody. It was about 8 to 10 feet long. Oh, maybe about 6 inches around in certain parts. One tip had a sharp metal piece. That's what you used to prod the animals. And the other end of it had a flat metal piece. You used that to clean up mud and stuff off the plow. That was his weapon. That's the weapon Shamgar had and used. That's what he did. He perhaps was from a dysfunctional family. So if you think you're alone, you, you ain't. By the way, every family is dysfunctional since Genesis 3. Did you know that? Nothing's working the way it was meant to be since Genesis 3. So don't think you're the unusual person. You're normative. Anyway, I think this may have been a guy from a dysfunctional family because you see his dad's name, Anat? That's not a Hebrew name. You know what Anat is? It's the name of the Canaanite god of sex and war. Now, what Israelite set of parents would name their kid after a Canaanite god of sex and war? I wonder if they had become so compromised by the idolatry of the land 
that they named their son Anand, and he ends up being the father of Shamgar. I don't think Shamgar had the best dad in the world, therefore, nor the best nurture and admonition in the Lord. I think he probably came from a, dis he had a stick. He came from a dysfunctional family, and he was a peasant. What do you think, rich people walked around with ox goads? I mean, he's got three strikes against him. He got nothing really good to use. He comes from a worthless family. <coughs> he's a peasant. Look what he did. God chose him. Look what he did. My goodness. And in spite of these limitations and disadvantages, we'll close with this. Please notice all that Shamgar accomplished. A couple things to learn from this. One verse. One, he stayed where he was. Sometimes it's God's will for Christians to relocate. Maybe move to a different country or change a church or a job. I understand that. But sometimes it's God's will for a Christian to stay put. Usually, however, the Christian wants to move on when the discomfort level in that Christian's present situation is getting higher and higher. You forgive me if I'm being a little too honest and upfront, but I think some here are entertaining the idea of leaving when our pastor does. And I would say to you, if that's how God is leading, please obey God. But make sure it's God and not just your flesh. First of all, to me, what a sign of disrespect to the pastor who's invested the better part of his life in this church to think in his absence there's nothing here to hold you anymore. That means his ministry has failed because he's tried to lead us to follow Christ, not him, not a personality. So I would really be careful. Shamgar stayed right where he was. That's oftentimes a harder thing to do. I think we're going to get through this unless we don't. <laughs> Those are the options. So if we bail out prematurely, we may not get to see what God has for us in the next phase of the life of this church. I would really caution you and me about backbiting and insinuations and impugning motives at a time when the evil one finds us to be most vulnerable. I would be really cautious. I'd seek the capacity to bridle the tongue more than ever before. I must tell you, we are hearing things. We don't know whether to cry over them or laugh over them. Some things that some of you have heard that simply do not stand the test of truth and facts. It's just not true. Just not true. Be careful. Shamgar, who had not much going on, stayed where he was. How do we get to see the hand of God get us through a really rough situation if we bail out too soon? And if you don't think it's tempting, it is tempting. Some of us have options. I don't think it's wise to exercise them before you give Almighty God a chance to show his hand of supernatural blessing upon us. When we are in our most desperate situation, don't you see God is at his best? He's our father. 
I would like to see what happens on the other end of all this. I'd like to see what God has for Sagemont Church next. But I don't want to miss out it, on it by bailing out. I want to be like Shamgar. Stay where you are. You know the grass is greener thing? No way. Wherever you go, there you are. And you ain't so hot. I remember when I was uh, younger, and I was a minister in, another, in Ohio in this case, and I used to meet with another fellow minister, and we would lament and things in the ministry and complain about our respective people. It's therapy for pastors. And he moved a lot from church to church, and at the time I had moved from various ministries also quite a bit. One time he said something to me. He said, Stuart, you know what just occurred to me? You and I can trust God for leaving, but we cannot trust God for staying. He was so right. Trust God for leaving, going, but trust God for staying. Staying in place and seeing how God can be faithful Bring us through the wilderness wanderings just as he did Israel. That's a whole different discipline. So Shamgar, one verse, but I get this out of this. He stayed where he was. Second, he did what he could. What could he do? But I don't think he picked up his stick and went after 600 Philistines in a group. <laughs> That'd be a suicide mission. I think he hid out behind bushes and there he sees a lone Philistine and conks him on the head one at a time. But he wasn't strong enough to go after the whole Philistine army. He just had impact on one at a time. That's what we could do. There are certain things here in our church, I'll tell you, they're overwhelming. Some of the issues that we're confronted with, it seems to me, what do you do about it? Well, you do what you could. That's what you do. <laughs> you don't worry about what you can't do. God doesn't hold you responsible. You know what? Uh, you know what anxiety is, it seems to me? Anxiety. When you cross the bound in your mind from what you can do and what you can't do, that crossing is called anxiety. When you start getting focused on issues, but you can't do a thing about it, God doesn't give you grace. Instead, you stay on this side of the equation, but what can you do? What has he enabled you to do? Maybe it's praying about it. Well, prayer doesn't lead you to anxiety. Prayer is the antidote to anxiety. And so, look what this guy did. He stayed where he was, he did what he could, and he used what he had. I don't think he was the most gifted, well-endowed guy in the history of the world. He had a stick. He just used what he had. What do you have? You have whatever God gave you. Use it. Shamgar stayed where he was, he did what he could, he used what he had, and he accomplished a lot for the Lord Jesus. How many Shamgars are in here? How many Ehuds are in here? Unlikely deliverers. We who are saved, do you know what we're called to do? We're called to be saviors for another. I don't mean in the ultimate sense. There's only one Jesus who's saved from sin. I don't mean that. I mean God is called, he who has delivered us has called us to deliver one another as well from sin, from bondage, from idolatry, from depression, from anxiety, from waywardness, from gossip, from bad attitudes. Yeah, yeah. And you say, well, but what's my place? I can't say this, I can't. What do you mean? 
God used a handicapped man. God used a peasant who had a stick. Why can't he use you? You've been delivered, now deliver somebody else. How about right here in this church? Lord Jesus, it's our desire not just to know Scripture, but to be transformed by it. Lord, you've got a lot of transforming to do with us. We, we've been brought a long way, but boy, we have a lot to go. And circumstances reveal it. Circumstances, challenging ones like we face here as a church. I think sometimes, boy, oh boy, it doesn't produce flaws and sin, but it sure is an opportunity for the flesh. How untimely it would be for us to go carnal at a time when we may be on the precipice of the greatest days of this church. I think what we're experiencing are labor pains. That hurts. Oh God, I pray we wouldn't cut short the process until you birth in us and through us what you want for this church and for your glory. Thank you for the record of these judges in Israel. They're just like us. They're nothing special. But they became special when you took them and endowed them and poured out your spirit upon them. And oh God, if we ever needed a heavy dose of your spirit here at Sagemont Church, it's now, right now. So we pray for a mighty, fresh outpouring of your Holy Spirit upon us as individuals and as a corporate body, moving us to be joyous and enthused in worship, moving us to burn white hot with an evangelistic interest, moving us with a love for one another that we haven't yet even manifested. Oh, God in heaven, here we are rather empty, even in some cases discouraged. For sure, we're very, very suitable ones for you to be glorified through. For we wouldn't dare take credit for the good, glorious things you may have for us. Oh, God in heaven, as you have in almost 54 years of a wonderful man's ministry. Are you done with your spiritual gifts and miracles and supernatural endowments? How could that be and you still be God? Oh, God, we believe you're still God. Please manifest yourself through us, flawed though we may be in this place we love, Sagemont Church. Make us to be like Shamgar, staying where we are, using what we have, doing what we could, and each of us accomplishing great things for you. This we pray in Jesus' name, amen.